Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimruttshow.com. That's jimruttshow.com. Today's guest is Ken Stanley. Ken leads a research team at OpenAI on the challenge of open-endedness. He was previously a professor of computer science at the University of Central Florida and was also a co-founder of Geometric Intelligence, Inc., which was acquired by Uber. We had one of his other co-founders, Gary Marcus, on the show back in EP25, which was also a very interesting episode. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. Really glad to be here. Yeah, Ken is a person who I have been following his work for many years, actually. Those who listen to the show regularly know that I'm sort of pathologically obsessed with neuroevolution, and Ken is one of the major dudes of neuroevolution, the University of Texas crew, who are one of the top research centers in that in the world. And Ken is an inventor of probably the most cited neuroevolutionary tool called NEAT, Neuroevolution of Augmenting Topologies, that is, and its follow-on HyperNeat. He's also developed novelty search and poet algorithms, amongst many others. His main research areas are neuroevolution, generative and developmental systems, coevolution, machine learning for video games, and interactive evolution, quality diversity, and open-endedness. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, looking forward to, to talking about some of it. Yeah, in fact, originally when I invited Ken on the show, knowing his work and having you know, read a lot of his stuff over the years, we originally were going to talk about his book for about half the episode, and then we're going to talk about the current state of play of neuroevolution, particularly with respect to AI. But after I read the book, I reached out to him and said, you know, that book is sufficiently interesting. Let's do, let's split this into two episodes. So today we're going to mostly talk about his relatively recent book, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, The Myth of the Objective, which he co-wrote with Joel Lehman. In about a month, we'll have Ken back on a show just focused on the current state of play and maybe a little bit of the history of neural evolution. So before we jump into the book, a couple of bits of conceptual plumbing that I think might be best presented up front. One, it's funny, when I was reading the book, as I do, I create a bunch, usually about 100 annotations on the book as I go through it in my Kindle. And I must have written seven or eight times NFLT. Eventually, you get around to it, but I think it'd be useful as a tool we can refer back to in the discussion to tell people what the no free lunch theorem is. No free lunch theorem. Uh, sure. Um, no free lunch theorem is a theorem about the ability of optimization algorithms to solve arbitrary problems in general. And basically the idea is that there's no algorithm that can be good at for solving basically every possible optimization problem that you might face. And that means basically in, in more simple language, it basically means nothing can be good at everything. And so if you become good at certain types of problems, then you're going to pay by being worse at other types of problems. Um, and so it sort of was a, a, a wake up call for, um, for optimization of uh, generic black box optimization um, to say, like, look, even if you're doing really well on some things, you're probably paying uh, for that by doing worse on some other things. Yes, I like to tell my friend Dave Wolpert out at the Santa Fe Institute, 
you know, when I meet people in the data sciences or machine learning area, I immediately peg them as, do they deeply understand the no free lunch theorem or don't they, right? And it's quite interesting that people fall into both buckets. Whenever I hear anybody, you know, claim they have the magic answer for anything with an algorithm, I go, no free lunch theorem. And they look kind of a little bit sheepishly and go, oh yeah, right. <laughs> but it's really important, particularly in the context of what we're going to be talking about today, is that there is no guaranteed right answer in general, though of course the other follow-on, the no free lunch theorem, is that in any given domain, any knowledge of the domain can be used to select and pick and tune your algorithm. There is hope. It's not just endless chaos out there, but always one must be careful not to overpromise about approaches or algorithms. The other concept, which we'll probably refer to a few times, comes from evolutionary computing, and that's the idea of exploitation versus exploration. I don't think either of those words are in the book, but maybe say a few words about that concept. Yeah, in um, in optimization and uh, machine learning algorithms, the, these exploitation and exploration often come up, and they refer to uh, kind of two sides of the, of the same coin is when you're trying to look for something. Sometimes what you do, you would use the word exploit, which means that you are moving in a direction that has increased your reward. It's so things seem to be improving. And so you continue to move in that direction. And that's sort of an exploitation. In exploration, the idea is that you would kind of deviate off the path that has been so far pointing you towards increasing reward. Um, and the idea there is that you're exploring, so you're trying to see maybe if there's even better things uh, that aren't necessarily on the path that looks uh, best right now. Um, I would note, though, that um, that distinction or dichotomy actually, as we get into the book, um, will turn out to be lacking some nuance. Is actually more nuanced than just those two things. Um, but I imagine we'll get into that a little bit later. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I was going to make that point, which is that what we're going to talk about today is a step beyond those. And in fact, and I think I've said this on the podcast multiple times, the first time I applied complexity science more broadly and evolutionary computing more specifically in my business career was right around the idea of exploitation versus exploration on a fitness landscape for mergers and acquisitions, believe it or not. And it actually worked. I wish I'd had the tools that we're going to talk about today to think about it then, though, on the other hand, this, we'll talk about this. When does this open-ended approach, is it really practical? So the alternative to open-endedness, perhaps, a more nuanced than just a straight hill climber, hill climber meaning you just always exploit, just keep doing incrementally better, better, better. There's also the trick of exploring, which is intentionally moving in a direction that doesn't send a signal that we're getting better, 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 but then may allow us to get better, better, better later. So think of it as the alternative to Ken's idea of open-endedness. And so, yeah, the myth of the objective, which is the subtitle of the book, in this case is actually bang on. I mean, that's essentially the core deep idea here. Talk about what you mean when you say an objective and maybe point out how amazingly pervasive it is in, in how we think about the world. Yeah. So um, the book is really about the fact that in our society and in our culture, almost everything we do is guided in some way by objectives. So what do, what do I mean by objectives? I mean, objectives means um, when you set a specific goal and measure progress towards that goal, that you can call that your objective. And when you think about some examples of uh, things that are driven objectively, it's like 
um, when you're getting graded in school. Uh, I mean, you're basically trying to maximize that grades. So you're trying to, to get the, the highest grade you can, or basically um, if you want to get a job, like your objective is to get that job. If you want to raise your income, your objective is to get a higher income. And so there's many things that are driven by objectives. Um, and uh, it's a lot of the sort of so societal level or institutional decisions are also objectively driven. Like, should we fund this or should we fund that? Ultimately, um, usually hinges on, well, what is the objective and do we believe this objective is achievable? Yep. And as you point out in the book, it's more than just the obvious kind of business things. Can we make more nails in the nail factory this month? Which actually might be a case where, you know, incremental improvement is, is the way to go. Get better and better at making nails. But it's, you know, slips into everything from we think about our, who we marry and dating, as you say, to education, our careers. As I read the book, I had never really focused on the fact that it is really quite pervasive in how 21st century, at least Western human beings, have taken objectives to heart and have organized our life almost entirely around them. So what's the downside of that? At first it says, hey, getting better all the time. That sounds good. What's wrong with that? Well, that's a, that's a lot of the point of the book is that there is a big downside to doing things that way, even though at first it might seem like the obvious way to go. Um, but the problem is that if everything is arranged around objectives, then it effectively cuts off the ability to explore um, and to do things for reasons that are actually different from objectives. Like, for example, to do something simply because it's interesting. And ultimately, that has a really big cost because not only, I mean, at the superficial level, like, okay, you're not having as much fun. But at a deeper level, the problem is that there are many things that we would like to accomplish in this world, in, the, in our society, or as individuals, um, that we can't accomplish as objectives because we just don't know how to do them. And it's really curiosity and exploration uh, that ultimately offers some hope that we might actually uncover some of the stepping stones that we need to achieve those much more kind of long-range, blue-sky types of discoveries. And so objectives can actually be getting in the way of more kind of serendipitous discovery that would be available to us if we weren't so obsessed with objectives. Yep. You give a very nice example from the pick breeder project, which unfortunately doesn't seem to work anymore. At least it didn't work a couple of days ago. And it didn't work again this morning when I went to the site. But why don't you tell us what pick breeder is and how it worked and why it's a very interesting example of how objective-based behavior misses a whole lot of possibilities. Yeah, so this is a pretty counterintuitive claim that objectives are problematic. Um, and so it's not something that I would have just uh, naturally decided to promote or, or, or to, be, uh, to, to be creating as a cause if it hadn't been for the fact that we did some experiments in the field of, of AI, basically, where we actually started to see some serious, serious problems with objectives that were unexpected. And really the key place where that started to emerge was this thing called PickBreeder. Um, and PickBreeder was a website that we put up many years ago, which is why basically now it's starting to have some trouble uh, running anymore, but ho hopefully we can at least have it up. Um, but when we put it up, it was it was a very novel system. So basically what you could do in, was you could go to this website and you could actually breed pictures. Um, and breeding pictures is kind of a strange concept, but it's sort of like breeding dogs or breeding horses. You could take a picture, you could have 
asks the picture to have offspring and the offspring would be a little bit different from their parents, just like with animals. And the, the cool thing was though, that if you actually bred a picture into something kind of interesting, then you could publish it and it would go back to the website and other people could see that and they could actually breed from there. So people were breeding from each other's discoveries basically. And so this was um, kind of a fun game and maybe a toy for some people, but ultimately it was really profoundly revealing in a way that I, I hadn't necessarily expected when we started to notice this underlying phenomenon, um, which is just kind of mind blowing, which is that when we looked at all of the discoveries that were really interesting on the site, and those are things like images that look like things that, that you see in the real world, like butterflies or cars um, or a skull, there was a beautiful skull that was discovered. And when we looked at those images and we looked at like, well, how did people actually discover these things? Like how did people breed towards them? And we discovered that actually in just about every single case, it was only when they weren't trying to get those things that they got them. And so this is very counterintuitive and sounds very strange. Like you can only find things by not looking for them. Um, but you know, this is ties in directly to this issue with objectives, because of course, uh, if if that's true, then then it would be a really bad idea to have a particular image in mind as your objective and then try to breed towards it because you'll almost certainly fail because the only way to get to things is by not trying to get to them. And so the implications of that are really broad. If, if that's actually a general principle that often the only way you can get to certain kinds of discoveries is by not trying to get to them, uh, then setting objectives can be actually really bad for you if you want to discover those things, uh, which are possible to, to create or discover, but just don't, don't happen to be convenient to discovering through objective types of search. Um, and so PicReader kind of was the first reveal of this principle. Um, and we can go into like, how, how did we know this? I mean, obviously it sounds really strange. How did we figure this out or, or notice this phenomenon? But just to begin with, uh, I can just say that um, we did, and it was pretty mind-blowing to me uh, because it basically contradicted everything I'd ever learned about how achievement works. You know, when you go to school or like engineer, getting an engineering degree, I mean, you've got to know what you're trying to do in order to do it. Um, and this just worked in the exact opposite way. Yeah, quite interesting. Now, it's interesting. I contemplated a similar project 19 years ago where I was going to have an art generator that basically threw out, I think it was 50 lines drawn with bezet curves, essentially. I don't even remember if they were quadratic or linear or what. And basically, they'd be defined in terms of uh, artificial DNA, and you would do a four-by-four matrix of them, and you'd select the one that looked most like what you were trying to do. And what I was going to do as the proof of principle was try to imagine a picture of Abraham Lincoln's face and see if I could start with 16 random sketches and converge towards a picture of Abraham Lincoln. But I never did the project. It sounds like, based on the write-up in the book, that you actually did experiment with trying to get people to you know, go for a specific objective rather than just to look for what might be interesting. Maybe if you could address that a little bit, that would be, that would be kind of cool. Yeah. So we, we uh, once we noticed that this kind of phenomenon was happening where people were discovering things by not looking for them, of course, we were very interested then in, in what happens when you actually are looking for something. And we actually did a lot of experiments along those lines. 
Um, we, we can speak anecdotally about how hard that is. Like if it turns out that if you go to pick breeder and you have a certain type of image in mind, like maybe you want to get a, a picture of, um, like say an apple or something like that, it'll be really, really hard. Uh, you'll probably fail, uh, which is why, um, you know, the site is actually frustrating for a lot of people because you see all these images there and you think, oh, this is going to be fun. I'll just create whatever I want. And then you can't. But beyond just kind of this anecdotal evidence, um, we also did experiments where we intentionally set objectives for an automated process, um, meaning that we basically started a search algorithm without humans in the loop where the objective was a particular target image. And we didn't try to use evolution because after all, evolution is what's used inside of PicBreeder, um, just to move directly towards that objective based on um, image matching. And those also would fail miserably except for the very, very simplest images. Um, and we understand why, which is probably more important than just uh, the evidence um, because understanding why tells you sort of why this makes any sense at all. Um, and the reason is because if you think about it, the stepping stones that lead to the kinds of things that you want, in this case, images don't necessarily look like them. So like if you want to get to a skull, like the bad news is that the things that lead to skulls don't look like skulls. And so that explains why it would be a really bad idea to always have the skull in your mind and say, this is my objective, because as you move towards the skull and you see things that don't look like skulls, you would discard those things and avoid those things. But those are actually the critical stepping stones that you need to cross to get to the skull. And in fact, that's true for like every, just about every interesting image on the site. And it's not even a surprise if you really think about it. I mean, in a complex search space. Of course, there's going to be some deception, which is what we call that kind of uh, trick where the stepping stones don't actually look like the final product. Because if there wasn't, then it would be extremely easy, right? I mean, all hard problems are effectively deceptive. Otherwise, they wouldn't be called hard problems. And, and hard problems exist in complex spaces. And so in some sense, this is this is a, a reasonable and expected situation. But the, but the thing that's sort of interesting and unique about it is that we are seeing in such a stark contrast that the objective is so pathological because in our culture, we think objectives are the means to get anywhere. Um, and here you see the exact opposite where they're actually something that stops you from getting anywhere or stop you from getting everywhere. And so this is, um, this is something to ponder whether this actually applies beyond just pick breeder. Yeah, and we do, and we'll talk about that later on. You know, to get a sense of just how amazingly large, you know, the space of possible images is, you know, I just did some simple calculations. Let's take a real simple case of a thousand by a thousand black and white image, you know, just black or white. The number of possible images is two to the millionth. What the hell? Right? How big is that? Well, take it to what well, we're thinking powers of 10. It's 10 to the 100,000th, one followed by 100,000 zeros, if I did my logarithms correctly. I think I did. And that compares to the number of fundamental particles in the universe. What's the number, people? 10 to the 80th. Oops. 10 to the 80th, fundamental particles in the universe, number of quarks, number of electrons, number of photons versus 1,000 by 1,000 black and white image, which would be considered low res today, 10 to the 100,000th. And, of course, your space is even more, was it grayscale or was it color? Color, it's color, yeah. It was color, so I was even, you know, not that it makes much difference. You know, the combinatorics explode to a ridiculous number anyway. And you had a very interesting metaphor. You called it the room of all images. It reminded me of, of Borges' library, essentially. Maybe if you could take us through a little bit about what the idea of the room of all images is and how the idea of stepping stones 
somehow emerges from that thought experiment. Yeah. So we, I mean, you could talk about the room of all images or even the room of all possible things, um, like all the things that you could ever invent. Um, and if you imagine them all together in some vast, vast space, like we put them in a warehouse, a warehouse the size of the solar system or something or bigger, um, then you can imagine that that room would have some kind of organization. Like you'd imagine that like computational devices would be in one corner and like paintings would be in some other corner and they're near each other in some way. So there's some logic to the organization of that room and the logic that, that sort of guides the organization of that space, which is the space of basically all possible things that can be created um, is kind of the logic that you need to understand in order to find things, you know, in the room. Um, and what's interesting though, is that the organization of that giant room of all possible things is not going to be intuitive. Like there are going to be some things that are near each other that initially don't make sense. Like for example, the, the fact that, you know, vacuum tubes lead to computers. So we can imagine in this room that there are vacuum tubes sitting near computers because in, in, in the, in the real history of computation, uh, the first computers were made with vacuum tubes, but you wouldn't think that you should go to the part of the room filled with vacuum tubes. If you wanted to build a computer, that's counterintuitive. And so this kind of phenomenon would happen over and over again. And so the room is kind of a metaphor for the organization of, of the space of what's possible and how just ultimately counterintuitive that organization is, which is why it's very difficult to navigate that room through objectives alone. Yeah, it's just too damn big, right? In some sense just like so many possibilities. Although I do want to have to toss out that while the vacuum tube was one road to computation, if we're thinking big and open-ended, we should remember there's at least two others, which were the analog computers of people like Vannevar Bush, right? He didn't use vacuum tubes. He used gears and axles and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and the other, and I did just a little fun research to see where this stood. You can actually build the equivalent a digital computer using electromagnetic, electromechanical relays. And people have done so and can continue to do so. So while the space that we actually live in, the land of the transistor, did go through the vacuum tube, there are no doubt other roads to computation as well, which actually reinforces your story. That's going to be true with, with just about any complex space. So, I mean, like with pictures, of course, you know, there, there was a certain path that was followed to find the image of the skull and pick breeder, but certainly there's, there's other possible paths. I mean, no one's found one, but um, of course, there's going to be an infinite set of paths because there's the infinite set of trajectories uh, that could lead to the same point. But one thing we can be fairly certain about, this is important, is that almost just about all those paths are going to be counterintuitive in some way. So it doesn't help you escape from this, the fact that there may be multiple paths to something. If it wasn't counterintuitive, it wasn't deceptive, it wouldn't be a hard problem. Now, you've mentioned deception twice. Let's drill into this concept a little bit, because this turns out to be pretty fundamental to the rest of the story. And I think one of the easiest ways to get at least a simple-minded version of what deception is, is to talk a little bit about the robotic mouse in the maze. Yeah. So um, the, the problem of deception is the problem that when you think that you're moving in the right direction, you're actually not. Or the opposite would be when you actually think you're moving in the wrong direction, it turns out you actually were on the right path. Um, and the mouse in the maze is a kind of a metaphor for that. And so in, in this robotic mouse in the maze, we put a robot in a maze and it, it can't see beyond the walls. So it's basically can't see where the end point is. But we can tell the robot how close it is to the end point. Um, and that's sort of like a little bit of a signal 
for the robot to know if it's going in the right direction or the wrong direction. If, if, if you think about it, it's basically um, a stand-in for the objective. So like the, the end point in the maze is the objective. And we're telling the robot how close it is. And, and this is a very important metaphor because this is basically how we run things in, the, in, our, in our society. You know, we basically say, let's set up a metric and let's measure how close we are to where we want to be. And that should help us guide us to getting to that basically exit from the maze. And the problem is, though, if you think about it, this is a, this is a very simple thought experiment and it's, it comes out pretty bad. The problem is that, of course, you can move towards the, the goal and actually see your distance to the goal go down, even if you're actually walking straight into a cul-de-sac or, or a dead end. And that means that, like, yeah, you'll eventually you'll keep on getting a higher and higher score and then just be completely stuck uh, because you can't keep moving forward. And so you've been deceived. It looked like things were going well. It looked like everything was moving in the right direction, but it turns out you just ran into a brick wall. And that's basically what deception is. Now, to probe on that just a little bit, on that example, yes, a really dumb, look at my GPS and see how far I am from the goal, mouse will almost inevitably fail in a maze and you'd have to add a lot of noise to get him out of it. But there are also like quite simple algorithms that will allow a mouse to relatively efficiently navigate a maze like Tremo's algorithm, which essentially marks where it's been. And if you revisit the same intersection twice, you back up the way you came. That remarkably simple algorithm actually is guaranteed to solve a maze, even a pretty deceptive maze, surprisingly quickly. How does the idea of these simple algorithms enter into the idea of deception? Yeah. So you have to keep in mind that it's just, this is just a metaphor, really. The intent here is just to use this as a metaphor. And you have to consider that, like, basically when we say, like, we don't know the way to get through the maze, it's actually uh, the, the real, the reality, like, as you pointed, the practical reality of like actually getting through a maze is that we do know something about mazes. Um, and we can exploit that understanding to create an algorithm that, that does given enough time, have a chance to get to the end of the maze. But the thing is that we're talking, we're just using this as a metaphor for problems where we don't know about the search space. Like that's the important point here. If we don't know anything about the search space and it's very high dimensional, unlike, you know, a typical maze, a two dimensional, this is going to be like, a, a, we could be in a hundred dimensional, thousand dimensional, million dimensional search space. Like if we're talking about the real world, then, you know, the maze is a good metaphor when you just have this very naive kind of beacon, um, which says, okay, am I getting closer or not like the GPS? Because that's effectively what we're doing. I mean, it sounds almost ridiculous. Would you actually try to solve a maze that way in practice? No, but that is actually how we try to solve like hard real world problems. We have these very, very simplistic metrics for like, you know, are we maximizing the profit for the year? It's like a single measure. And then we use that to determine whether this giant multidimensional search is moving in the right direction, just like the naive mouse in the maze. Yep. I can give you a personal example of the reality of that perspective. One of the ad bits of advice you get from people for managing your career is always get a pay increase when you make a move between companies, right? Sort of a commonplace. And I was always a contrarian. And three different times, I actually took pay cuts to make a move. One time, 40%. And all of them turned out to be the correct move. So if somebody had been you know, applying rigorously, climb the hill, always get a pay increase, certainly never take a pay cut, certainly not 40%, I would have missed out on the most interesting parts of my career. Right. Yeah, it's a great example. 
yeah, I mean, if if you want to make outlandish amounts of money, like probably it's not a good heuristic to just be like, okay, I just need to maximize my salary. Um, because the stepping stones that lead to, to extreme wealth just have almost nothing to do with that. I mean, and so that would be, that would be a, a deceptive measure. Yep. It seems to be absolutely true in that case. The other example I give, and I love it because it's just so homey, is the Chinese finger trap. If you remember, when we were kids used to buy them for a nickel at the drugstore, probably more than that now. You stick your finger into both sides of kind of this woven straw thing. And the trick is, if you try to pull your fingers out, you can't get them out. So why don't you talk about that a little bit and how that's another very simple example of deception, maybe help bring the idea home for people. Right, right. Just an intuitive metaphor. I mean, it's basically a very, very simple search problem. Like you've stuck your fingers into, into this trap. And if you pull outwards, that seems to, like you're moving in the right direction, right? Because that's basically where you want to go is out. Um, but it turns out that the, the trap actually gets tighter the, the farther you pull out. So if you measure your distance from your goal, it's, it's getting closer. So it seems like things are going in the right direction. But actually, you're going in the exact opposite direction as the one you should because counterintuitively, that's why it's called a trap, actually, the way you're supposed to push is inward where it seems like you're actually moving towards being trapped, but you're actually not because the trap is designed to open up when you push inward. So it's just deceptive by design. Um, and it's a very simple form of deception. But, you know, if you think about it, like it's so simple and yet people get stuck in it and, and, and fooled for a while. I mean, imagine like a real world problem, which is like a million times more complicated than that. I mean, the, the, the deception that we're facing is just overwhelming and pathological if we're guided only by objectives. Yep. Now, you do make a point that and this is sort of at least analogous to the exploitation exploration issue, it's not exactly the same, but I call it analogous, is that, let's say, uh, the warning to be suspicious of objectives is true for big leaps, but may not be true for relatively small leaps. Could you maybe riff on that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's an important concession um, because it sort of distinguishes the point that the book is making from you know, an important commentary to just like uh, a crank, um, which would be somebody who would say, like, just forget all objectives in life and stop having objectives entirely. That is not a very wise thing to do. And, and we have to acknowledge that in order to have any credibility, because it's obviously true, especially in the case where your objectives are relatively nearby, um, or the way we put it, a stepping stone away. Yeah, like like if you want to get lunch, you know, you you can make that an objective, and that's very reasonable. Like it, you don't need to just wander around your house in the event you might find something you didn't expect. That wouldn't be very smart. Like you just go to the refrigerator and make your sandwich. And so there are a lot of things, and and things even a little more complex than that. Like maybe you're a company and you're trying to upgrade your software to the next version. That can be an objective. That's not incredibly ambitious. That's not an incredibly large leap from where you already are. That kind of stuff can work objectively. We're talking about things where we just don't know what the intervening stepping stones are to get where we want to go. Something like curing cancer um, or creating AI for that matter. And so there clearly we have no idea where we have to, to travel uh, on the road to getting to that particular objective. And those are the places where this kind of objective paradox, as you might call it, uh, come into play. Yeah, very cool. I thought that was very interesting, though I would just quibble a little bit as a former entrepreneur and business dude and all that stuff is, yeah, we, we'd look more than one link out, right? Look a few links out. But if you try to go too far, you're just wasting your time. And, you know, one of the truisms I advise young entrepreneurs on 
is basically innovation in the business technology space kind of, I think, is optimally two things. One is recombining what currently exists, right? Uh, Brian Arthur, who's a really good book, The Nature of Technology, gets into this in some detail. In fact, we're going to have Brian on the show next month. That you know, much of what we think of as innovation is recombining existing elements. I think, for instance, the current popularity of electric bikes, right? There's no magic in an electric bike. It's just a unique combination of stuff that had gotten good enough and cheap enough for other reasons, which we'll talk about in our next example, and no real magic. But I noticed that there's a zillion electric bike companies, and most of them are failing. So when I advise people to look for an interesting opportunity in business, look at something that has a, a novel combination of existing technologies plus one new thing, exactly one new thing, not less than one new thing and not more. Because if you have to solve two new things, you get into this crazy land where you're wandering around and don't know which way is up. If you have no new things, you end up like the 500 electric bike companies, of which 497 will probably be bankrupt in five years. So it's a little more nuanced than just one step. But that said, let's go to the very interesting example, which kind of starts drilling really down to the heart of, I think, the vision that you're trying to communicate here, which is the idea of the computer. And what would happen if you wanted to develop a computer 5,000 years ago? Yeah, um, so that's a thought experiment to, to, to consider the implication of objectives. And, you know, there's a number of stepping stones that need to be crossed to get to a computer. Um, as you pointed out, there's actually probably more than one path you could take. But, you know, for the sake of argument, we know that there's certain things in modern computers that you need, like you, you need, for example, electricity. And you could say maybe maybe vacuum tubes were one of the paths that was important and there are all kinds of things, obviously, that go into to, into computers. And so the problem is, though, let's go back five thousand years now and just forget about those things. Those are the those are the intervening stepping stones. And just think about the final goal, which is a computer. And then ask, well, why why did we wait five thousand years to do this? Like, why didn't we do this five thousand years ago? So let's let's go take everybody like five thousand years ago, like all the smartest people uh, who are around then, get them together in a special kind of Manhattan project, and say, look, guys, there's something that's possible that you may not have really thought of, which is a computer. Why are you wasting time working on whatever you are working on right now? Let's get to work on this. And the interesting thing is, like, if you did that, the problem is that all the stepping stones don't exist yet. Like, there is no electricity uh, that hasn't been discovered yet. And uh, among a myriad of other things. And so what you would do is you would basically destroy all of that mental capital, which is all these people with all this potential who in their own time could discover all kinds of things, wouldn't do that anymore because now they're all going to just be thinking about computers, but they don't have the stepping stones they need and they wouldn't make them because they wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to them that you need to make those things because no one has a clue what things lead to computers. And so not only would you not get computers, but you also wouldn't get the stepping stones and you would waste all of the, the effort and, and the resources that those people have to offer. And it would be a gigantic disaster that you tried to do that. And so it's sort of a sort of a thought experiment illustration of in, in some extreme case, how damaging it can be to try to impose objectives on people who otherwise would be doing something totally different that was driven by curiosity in a different direction. And yet when this is the cool thing, this is where, you know, my eyebrows really started to go up when I was reading the book was that, hmm, but nonetheless, we did go from 5,000 years ago to computers, right? Without a plan. Because people were doing, let's call them local optimizations, or, or as we'll talk about in a few minutes, novelty and interestingness. And somehow we created enough stepping stones to get to the point 
1940 or so, where people said, okay, it's one or two or three moves away to have a computer. And that would be kind of cool for fighting the Nazis. So we could calculate trajectories for, I think it was anti-aircraft cannons originally. And that you know gave the world the incentive to take two or three steps and go from 5,000 years of non-planned movement towards the computer to a final planned burst. When I got that in my head, I got, ah, this is what Ken's talking about. Right. Yeah. That's, I, that's the fascinating thing about this is when you consider that even though it's, it would be crazy to go back there and tell all those people to build a computer, somehow over the intervening 5,000 years with no plan, uh, it happened anyway. Um, and actually, that's like the only way it could have happened. Like it couldn't have happened by just going back there and telling everybody to build a computer. It had to happen in this organic, unplanned way, which is kind of why the title of the book is Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. And what it shows is that there is another way that amazing things are achieved, a much more kind of mysterious and less talked about way. But it's not a random way, as some people would characterize it. It is principled, like this kind of exploration that leads to these incredible ends. Um, it follows certain principles, which is something that the book tries to lay out. And that is something we should grapple with, like is this, al this alternative way towards really, really blue sky types of achievement, which is almost like magic. I mean, because it did happen. We do have computers today. Absolutely. We're going to go there. We're going to do a, quite a big, deep dive into, all right, this can't possibly be a random walk. I mean, because we know there's 10 to the hundred thousandth images and we ain't never going to visit any measurable percentage of them at random. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about some of the subjective aspects of this. You say in the book, and this is a direct quote, why do so many of us feel our creativity is stifled by the machine-like integration of modern society? And then go into a little bit longer talk about how this is just in some ways crushing many of us, right? And that, you know, things like our careers, right? And you give some very interesting examples of not being so rigid in our careers can have some really interesting outcomes. I thought one of the very interesting stories was Johnny Depp. Maybe you could tell us that story. Yeah, I guess Johnny Depp uh, was, in, you know, I, I hope I have all this right from my research, but was originally... Um, interested in being a musician. Um, and obviously we, we've seen, we've seen that he likes music. Obviously he's, he's been in bands uh, in recent years, um, but his original career path was that direction. Um, and so he wasn't thinking about, uh, about acting and um, it was just some kind of serendipitous connection that was made. I think it was through a girlfriend or something like that, that led him uh, to somebody saying, you know, why don't you try out for a part or something like that? Um, and so he ultimately, came to this opportunity and was opportunistic in order to take it um, that uh, was not uh, on the radar of his original objective, um, which is a very common uh, story for successful people, I think, which is interesting because it's, it's aligned with the, the theme of the book. Yep. And in fact, another quote is a peer-reviewed study found that nearly two-thirds of adults attributed some aspect of their career choice to serendipity. And I can say my own story in my career was, again, driven by this kind of thing. You know, I was, a, frankly, a disgruntled youth when I graduated from college, did not really want to participate in the grind of the world and did a little of this, a little of that, hitchhiked around the country, you know, uh, sold cars for a while, pay off my student loans. And then I got the easiest job I could find, which was, you were a college professor, you remembered us pesty college textbook peddlers. Remember those guys? I was one of those guys, right? 
It was a real easy job, left me plenty of time for my own projects, my own thinking, writing, et cetera. And it was perfect for a kind of disenchanted youth who didn't really want to play the game too hard, but wanted to make enough money to live modestly. But here I was doing this in 1979 or maybe late 78, as I just wandered around, visit 15 professors a day, like we're supposed to do. And fortunately, once you got good at the BM College textbook peddler, you only had to do it about 12 weeks a year. The rest of the time, you could do whatever the hell you wanted. Anyway, I started seeing these things on professors' desks. I said, what the hell is that? He said, that's a computer. And I go, what? And this was in the earliest days of personal computers, the things you've never heard of since, you know, North Star Horizon, MITS, IMSI, et cetera. And I go, wow, this is interesting. And I'd done some computer stuff in college, not a lot, but enough to know that I did not like the culture of computing in 1975 when I graduated from college which was the IBM mainframe, you know, punch cards, all that sort of stuff. And I go, I absolutely have nothing to do with those people. But suddenly when I see this idea of your own computer, I go, holy shit, this is really interesting. And if I hadn't happened to have that job at that time, you know, suppose I was a brake shoe salesman going around to repair garages in 1978 or 79. There's no way I'd likely to see a computer, but I happened to be a textbook peddler. I happened to see professors, often engineering professors, sometimes math guys. I've had these little computers and I said, shit, that's interesting. Interesting, important word. And so I started researching and I started hanging out at computer stores and stuff. And then the next year I said, this is interesting. This is something really interesting and important here. And I went and plunged down 90% of my net worth, $4,500, as I recall, for a totally loaded Apple II and a high-end graphic-capable dot matrix printer. And in fact, I think I was the only guy in Lexington, Kentucky at the time who had two, count them, two floppy drives. So people love to come over to my apartment to copy software, right? <laughs> It used to be, you'd, you know, write a little bit to memory. Oh, it was a flop. If you had one, you had to, oh, it was a ridiculous thing to make a copy of software. So anyway, uh, there was a perfect example of right place, right time, serendipity. But, and this is now we'll transition to, you know, I think one of your more interesting concepts is interesting. I had somehow made the conclusion that personal computers were fundamentally interesting. And I made a jag in that direction, went on to write the world's champion Othello program, and then got involved in the earliest days of the online information industry. And the rest, as they say, was history, right? All frankly, because I saw Professor X. I think the first one I saw was actually in the math department, the University of Kentucky. But interesting was the magic word. And so in the book, you talk a fair amount about two topics that are kind of related. Let's dive into both of them, go whichever order you want. But that's the idea of novelty and the idea of interestingness. Yeah, and a great story, by the way. It's good. It was a really great example. Um, and yeah, let's think. So let's think about interestingness for a second, since that's sort of what that that story really touches on. Um, that's you know the, the the concept of interestingness is 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 really important in the book, partly because as as you said, there's there's this issue with subjectivity. I think that makes people very uncomfortable, um, particularly. Uh, scientists and but also bureaucrats as well. Um, people who run things like to be objective, makes them feel more comfortable. So it's like, how do I know 
that what you are trying to do is going to work. Well, I need some kind of objective metric so that I can actually measure and know that we're actually moving in the right direction and so forth and so on. And yet, like in your story, there's so many steps that you take like that actually lead to great success in the long run down the road that don't actually involve follow, uh, some kind of objective metric. Actually, there's a kind of an interesting duality of the word objective, you know, if you think about it. Like an objective is something that you move towards, but also objective is this word that we use to describe things um, where we can actually measure and observe them um, in some way that can be shared. Um, and so science, science talks about um, objectivity and, and we need to be able to be objective in order to understand the results of our experiments and so forth. And so because of that, that's, that's a different notion of objective, which is sort of in contrast to subjective, where it's just like, well, how does it feel to me? From my subjective point of view, um, when I consider or contemplate like going down this path versus that path, and we just don't trust that at all, not in any kind of consensus that we have about how things should be run. Like uh, individually, you may have a, a strong kind of inclination towards your subjective perception. But as, as a society, we really don't trust subjectivity. And almost nobody would accept if you just told them this is your subjective impression. Like, it's okay. Like, go to your boss. So this is what I think we should do. Well, why should we do that? Like, how is that going to help us? Well, it's just, it's interesting. Like, let's just do it because it's really interesting. Well, that's probably not going to fly because it's completely subjective. It's like, don't tell me it's interesting. Tell me exactly how this is going to affect the bottom line. Like, what is actually going to happen? And the problem is that actually um, this, this obsession with objectives is also an obsession with objectivity, which prevents us from utilizing when we actually have really good subjective intuitions. Like when you saw that that computer was interesting, like whatever that means, because it's subjective and it's hard to measure what exactly that means. That was a very important insight. I mean, for your life, but probably also for society at large to see the potential that was there. There's often cases where people, most people don't see the potential in something and only a few people see it early. And that's a subjective impression a lot of the time. And that's a very important one. And humans are really, really good at that. And that's something that, that the way that we run our institutions doesn't really give us credit for, is the fact that we're very good at having subjective intuitions about what's interesting or not interesting. And it's just completely unrelated to all of this objective measurement stuff. And so that relates to what's interesting. You know, it's like the ability to say what's interesting is fundamental to achievement and discovery. The ability to realize like what, what I can do or to actually realize the potential that something has depends on my ability to subjectively intuit what's interesting right now in the here and now. And so somehow there have to be pathways that people can follow where they can actually follow um, the interesting. And so this is, and, and I think this, this, this is actually suggesting some, some social change, you know, because of the fact that we don't really at least formally sanction those kinds of pathways, except in rare exceptions. Uh, we're so paranoid about subjectivity that we just don't want to sanction it. Yeah, definitely. And I've, I, you know, since then, I've always sort of just followed my nose to what I thought was interesting and used that as my main navigator, where I decided to live, who I decided to, you know, date, eventually marry, and the work that I did, the things that I've invented. I've always used that because I really don't give a damn about things that aren't interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying we're really good at is following our nose for the interesting. Like we have a nose for the interesting as people. And you know what? That's not just um, a fluffy statement. You know, if you really get into it, what that really means is, look, if, if you spent your life learning about some subject, if you got really good at it, um, then you will have intuitions within that subject. 
that um, are hard to formalize or put into objective terms or maybe impossible, but they're still really, really valuable um, within that subject. Like as a computer scientist, like I can have all kinds of intuitions about computers, but they, they, they may not be objectively justified, but we should still take them seriously because of the fact that I'm trained in the area and have a lot of experience in the area or in artificial intelligence, for example. And this is where we have a huge blind spot, I think, in society is that we don't trust experts or people who have a lot of experience in something to use their expertise subjectively. We only trust them to be objective, which is really silly when you think about it, because it doesn't take any education to be objective. Like if I have to provide you a metric to show you, to prove to you that we're moving in the right direction, anybody can follow that metric. You don't need to have seven years of a PhD or something like that in order to know that the metric is going up. That's like a simple measure in a single dimension. Um, and so we're sort of denying people all of the intuition and that kind of subjective ability that they built up over years and years of becoming familiar with something, something intangible, um, by assuming that all of that is irrelevant and should be ignored. Like we can't trust you uh, because you think something is interesting in any formal way. As you were saying that, I was thinking about the fact that there's kind of an interesting support for that from cognitive neuroscience, which is our conscious Let's call them system two brains in the Kahneman topology, where you're thinking rationally about something, is remarkably low bandwidth. I think these have seen calculations on the order of 50 bits a second. And truthfully, you know, we don't do arithmetic as well as a $1 calculator, and we don't do objective very well, right? We look at the long lists of these posters of human cognitive flaws and all this stuff. Not only is it, are we slow at it, we're not very good at it. On the other hand, our unconscious mind is, I think, as you put it in the book, the most complex artifact we know of in the universe, computes at an unbelievable capacity in parallel in a very strange way, not at all like, as you know, as a digital computer does. And things like our intuition are not necessarily gated by this very low bandwidth in the conscious objective brain. So that might be another argument for trusting your intuition at least as much as your supposedly objective mind. Yeah, that's a good connection. Yeah, I mean, we should, um, yeah, we should put more stock into this this more subconscious, more intuitive part of our mind, which is responsible for so much of the discovery and advance that we see around us. And of course, it's actually more involved in everyday work than we think. You know, Antonio Damasio has done a lot of great research on the fact that even the most basic decisions, like what to have for breakfast, are driven by our emotions and our unconscious processes to an amazing degree. And if people have damaged the parts of their brain that do that kind of thing, they can't decide what to have for breakfast, no matter how smart they are, right? So learn to trust the unconscious processing, at least to a degree, and maybe use the objective as a cross-check. So now let's switch and talk about something that maybe is more amenable to turning into actual software, which is novelty search. Yeah, this this segues well into novelty and in, in, in novelty search, this algorithm that, that I worked on uh, with Joel Lehman, who is actually uh, the, the co-author of the book as well. I think the, the step that we have to take to move from interestingness to novelty is, is to start thinking about this in terms of could we formalize what we're saying more algorithmically? Like, like if we're saying that, okay, it, it is actually very promising and sometimes essential uh, to discover or achieve certain kinds of blue sky types of achievements um, to be able to follow paths of interestingness. 
you could say gradients of interestingness. Well, then is there some way to write this as an algorithm? Like basically like as a recipe for how would you do this? Like if I could actually write this down for you as a, as, as a guide. And, and it turns out that like it, it becomes, we want to be able to do that because we want to write algorithms and, and, I, and I'm in the field of machine learning. So in machine learning, we want to be able to write algorithms that capture all of these facets of human intelligence, including the non-objective. And then we would have powerful learning algorithms, but it becomes challenging when you get to the question of what is interesting, because that is very difficult to formalize, it turns out. I mean, it's almost like an AI complete problem, like what is interesting? And, and everybody, of course, has a different view of what's interesting, which is what's so powerful about like the fact that we have so many people that have so many different interests pursuing so many different things simultaneously. But if we want to write an algorithm that's going to sort of follow paths of interestingness, we need to formalize it in some way. And it turns out that novelty is a kind of a decent proxy for interestingness. It's not as good. Uh, like, so if I could actually write down an equation which basically expresses what is all the things that are interesting, that would be better. But I can't and nobody can. It's extremely difficult. We don't know how to do that. So novelty is sort of like a proxy that's kind of the second best option, which is to say, if you think about it, Almost everything that's novel is interesting. Sorry, almost everything that's interesting is novel, but not everything that's that's novel is interesting. And so it sort of it goes in one direction in a very positive way. So we know that like if it is if it is interesting, it's almost certainly novel. Like there are things that are not novel are almost never interesting. Um, and so like yeah, I mean car like the idea of a car was extremely interesting and compelling. You know, like in 1900. Uh, but right now it's not that exciting. Like you're not going to start saying, you know, there's a really interesting thing when you're at a party. Like you could put you could put a box on four wheels and drive around in it. I mean, that's not interesting anymore. Um, and so it's because it's not novel anymore. And so novelty alone has a lot of stock in terms of following things that are interesting. And what's nice about novelty is that you can formalize it pretty easily. Like I can sort of say, how different is this thing that I'm contemplating from something that I've already encountered in the past? And so I can write down like some function that will compute novelty in that way. And then that can be used as a proxy for interestingness. So I can follow the, the gradients of novelty in reality in an algorithm on a computer, like without a human intervening, I can actually write something that can do that. And this then allows us to see uh, some glimmer, I think, of like what a true interestingness-driven type of search would look like, um, which is which we could call we call the novelty search algorithm. And this this algorithm tries intentionally to follow paths of novelty without any obvious or without any explicit objective. Um, and so in some way, first, it's interesting just as an algorithm, like it can do some things that are interesting, but it's also in some ways an embodiment of what we've been speaking about more at a philosophical level, at a more kind of formal algorithmic level. It's like, well, can you write something down to, to make this a little more concrete? Well, yeah, we can write an algorithm. It's called novelty search, which follows the paths of novelty, which is a proxy for interestingness and has no final objective. And yet it will actually achieve things um, that are in some cases cannot be achieved objectively, which helps then to um, to highlight and validate this theory, um, because now we actually algorithmically showing that this principle comes into play rather than just arguing through hand waving, um, which novelty search does like it actually does solve problems 
that when we try to solve them objectively, we either get worse or no answer, uh, which can be very surprising. You know, think how counterintuitive that is. I tell the computer what I want it to do. Like I want, learn how to walk for this robot, say for a simulated robot. I tell it, I want that walk as far as possible. And it's actually better if I don't tell it what I want it to do. And I just say, just do novel stuff. It actually learns to walk better. Um, that's, uh, I think a very important demonstration of the underlying objective paradox um, and now in a more formal algorithmic sense. And as I understood it, tell me if I'm on the right track here, one of the ways novelty search works is by exhausting things that don't work. That's true. It will go to places to try things and then it will remember them. Um, and so that's an important part of the algorithm is it sort of, it, we call it an archive. So it keeps them in an archive. So it says, I've, I've done this. It leaves a description of what it did in the archive. And then it will... Um, reward itself for staying as far away as possible from where it's already been or from those things it's already done. And that's what's pushing it towards novelty. So it has sort of this implicit drive away from things it's already done or already tried um, towards somewhere else, somewhere more blue sky. Yeah, you gave a nice simpler example than walking of a robot trying to navigate down a hallway. Maybe you could draw that picture for us a little bit. It might be a little easier for people to get their arms around. Right. And that, that's basically like just taking more, more, more leverage from the, the little metaphor of the mouse in the maze that we talked about before, or the robot mouse in the maze. And so in this case, what we said is let's put the robot mouse in the maze in, in a real simulation that we'll put on the computer, um, we'll actually simulate it. And we will put a neural network inside of that robot, which will control it. And what we're hoping to find is uh, uh, like the right configuration of that neural network to help it get through the maze. And so that's, that's the problem. You're looking for a brain basically that will get it through the maze. And so if you then try to just reward it for how close it gets to the goal, which is just like what we talked about a little while ago um, in terms of deception, well, yeah, you'll, you'll, you run into a deceptive problem. Actually, a lot of the time you can get up to a point where it will actually get stuck. Or, or it will take a very, very long time uh, to find a brain that can actually run it through the maze. But if instead you reward it for um, finding some novel path that it's never taken before, well, then very rapidly and quickly, it will find all the paths through, through the maze to everywhere, including the end, and actually ends up solving the maze, finding a brain that drives the robot through the maze much faster than if the algorithm was rewarded for actually getting closer to the end of the maze, which again is very counterintuitive, uh, but it's a fact. It's much better to reward it for novelty, for doing something novel, than to reward it for getting close to the end of the maze if your goal is to get to the end of the maze. Um, so it's just another demonstration of this principle that sometimes it's just way better to follow the path of interestingness. Interesting. Now let's take one more step into something like theory or at least abstraction across this idea. And you, you say that information accumulation and increasing complexity are the telltale signs of any kind of search without an explicit objective. So are you saying there that increasing complexity and information accumulation are good tells for things that are moving in the right direction or moving in interesting directions? We're not going to use right direction because we're not going to talk about objectives. Right, right. I think what I'm saying, they, they might be good tells, but I think the, the point is more that um, they kind of come along for the ride if you follow this kind of principle. Like what I mean by this kind of principle, I mean like following uh, trajectories of interestingness rather than just objective types of trajectories. Um, like you'll get 
increasing complexity and information accumulation, which is which is a very very interesting side effect and very important. And and so it, it's worth thinking for a second, like what that actually means. Like what is information accumulation? It means that look, like imagine this. Like I put I put a robot in a, in a room with four walls. So it, there's no way out other than a door. And then I tell it to just keep on doing new things. Well, like at first it'll just crash into all the walls. And, and every time it does, it's new because it crashes into a different wall. But eventually to get out of the room, it's going to have to figure out how to open a door. And in order to do that, it's going to have to use its sensors, right? Eventually it's going to have to actually use its sensors. It's going to learn to identify the door, learn how to open the door. And so actually like it is forced because it is being pressured to do something new. It's forced to accumulate information about the universe. Like, what is a door? How do my sensors work? What are the elements of my environment um, that can be um, affected by my actions? And if you continue with this, like in the extreme, like you keep saying, you have to do something new, you have to do something new. I mean, you'll eventually land on Mars. But the thing is, like, if you land on Mars, then you learn all kinds of things. Like you've learned about what planets are in the solar system. You've learned about propulsion and rocketry and all these other things. And, and so that's a side effect of just pushing for more interesting or more novel stuff. And it's a part of, partly an explanation for why like our drive towards novelty, um, like socially, is, is also pushing us towards increasing knowledge uh, constantly. Um, and with that is also increasing complexity because in order to integrate that increasing knowledge, we need increasingly complex systems. And so you get a lot of interesting stuff. Instead of just saying, am I getting closer to the objective? What you get is increasing understanding of the universe and how it works, just as a side effect of not pursuing objectives. Interesting. So I suppose in the real world, I think about you know, back as a business dude, you also have to take a look at, you know, you are constrained with resources, Right. And so you have to ponder when a novelty search is likely to be good enough. I mean, let me take the no free lunch theorem. We know it's by definition not a panacea. So can you give us some kind of guidance? I mean, they're probably going to be very rough and hand wavy at this point, but when it makes sense to use novelty search versus other kinds of more brute force kinds of searches? Yeah, yeah. Good question. I mean, with all we've discussed, it, it's a really, it sounds like a great celebration of novelty search and sort of like the solution to everything. But it is not, of course. And, and the caveat that's really important to keep in mind is that it is really about risk. I mean, in order to have great rewards, you have to take great risks. Um, and so if you're in a situation where you can't afford to take risks, then yeah, just doing things because they're interesting could be pretty risky. That could actually be a bad idea. Um, and so this kind of search is really only possible when you have the resources and the cushion where you're willing to take the risk that you don't end up somewhere interesting because we're taking risks. Now, if you don't do this and you only follow objectives, then you're much, much less likely to find anything interesting. Um, so, so this is why it's still a good idea to the extent that we can afford to, to follow gradients of interestingness. But if you're going to do that, you have to bear in mind and you should be aware that you're intentionally taking a risk. You know, like if you take that job that has a lower pay, because you think that maybe that's going to lead to something more interesting, obviously you just got a pay cut. <laughs> so you're going to have to, you're going to have to live with that. And, and that, and you have to accept that that actually might not pay off. It's not guaranteed. There's no guarantee in novelty search that it's going to pay off. So yeah, the, the, the novelty search approach is basically saying if you have a stomach for exploration, it can be extremely high payoff, but you have to realize it's not guaranteed in any way to do so. But nevertheless, it may be the only way 
that you're going to get to certain kinds of discoveries. So if you're willing to take that risk, you may actually have a very high payoff if you're lucky. Yeah. And I think the other thing, if I was going to think about this heuristically, is when experimentation is cheap, it could be done in parallel. That's a pointer towards using novelty search. And you know things like computer-driven exploration of algorithmics is a good example where, in general, exploration is relatively inexpensive and can be done in parallel. Yeah, actually, and I should also, there's one other caveat that that reminds me that's important to, to point out, which is that um, there, the big difference between like a successful novelty-driven search and a successful objective-driven search is that we don't know where we're going to end up in the novelty search, obviously, because there's no objective. Um, and so like that has to be kept in mind. Like what we're, what we're offering here is not that you will solve problem X. Like you have a problem and then you just say, oh, well, I'll just do whatever's interesting. There's no reason to believe that's going to lead to solving this single problem X. What we're saying is that you have the opportunity to solve an undefined problem that we're not really sure yet what you're going to end up solving. You know, like if you look at like the, the issue of the, the computer sitting on the desk while you're delivering people or, ta- or you're buying people's books, like it's not clear what exactly you're going to accomplish because you find that so interesting, um, but you did accomplish something. Um, and that's the thing. It's the, the ultimate accomplishment is undefined. So you have to be able to live with that ambiguity if you're following a path of interestingness or novelties. We're not really sure what we're going to accomplish. It's not meant to be an objective solution. Like it's not, we're not, I'm not saying like, okay, well now I want to figure out, uh, you know, how to get um, into grad school. So I'll just wander around and do interesting things and hope that it will happen. Well, something else really cool might happen, but that doesn't mean you actually will get into grad school. Yeah. If you're going to go down this road, you have to understand what it's about, right? That you have to sort of cast loose of any single objective and make the bet that interesting somehow is more interesting. We got a couple of case studies. We get kind of short here on time. This has been such an interesting conversation, which got three that we could do. One is education. The other is science, what you called, I think, innovation. And the other is AI itself. We could probably have time to do two of them. Which which two do you think would be the most interesting? Let's see. I guess we could try education and AI. All right, let's do it. Personally, I have a great interest in the sociology of science, but we'll put that off for another day. So you have a whole chapter in your book on how our educational systems at all levels are really bound up with objectives and there might be a better way. Why don't you tell us your thoughts on how your way of thinking might allow us to, as you say, unshackle education? So this series of revelations that we outline in the book. I mean, they're revelations for me. So I, I, these weren't things I was expecting to, to discover, like starting with Pick Breeder, and, and they, they felt like revelations. I eventually started to, to see a connection between these and the educational system, which was uh, maybe surprising to me. I, I wasn't trying to uh, do, say anything uh, particularly innovative about education, but, but I started to see that this relates a lot to education because education is very objectively driven. You know, when we talk about schools failing or um, losing a competitive advantage to other countries or things like that, what we're talking about basically are test scores um, and that the test scores are not going up. Um, They're not going in the right direction. And that's really interesting because that's really that's a very stark kind of description of an objective driven search. Like if what we're saying is that like the path that we want to follow is the path of increasing test scores to the point where I guess every child in the country gets a hundred on every, on every uh, standardized test or something like that. 
Well, that's like a stark objective-driven pursuit. And 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 what 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 these principles that we're discussing suggest is that these kinds of objective-driven pursuits are doomed to failure because of deception. So, in other words, like if I find a path that causes test scores to increase, then almost certainly I'm running into a brick wall, and they will stop increasing at some point. At some point, probably soon, way short of the goal of everybody getting a hundred, um, because it's an, an unbelievably complex search space. You know, the point I've made is that this is a principle that applies in complex spaces. Simple spaces, you can follow the objective, no problem, that will work. But education is unbelievably complex. I mean, everybody recognizes that. That's why it's again. That's why it's a hard problem. And so it looks like what we're really doing is just naively falling for the objective paradox as a society collectively across the entire educational system, which is basically test driven by tests as an objective metric to tell us where to search next. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a whole, there's a very political issue here, like with tests and things like that. And I just want to like highlight that I'm not coming at, at this from this political angle. Like I'm coming at it from just because a pick breeder and novelty searching these things. Like just what I see here is that following a metric like this naively is basically what you're doing is just going to a local optimum and getting stuck. And so there's probably a better way to think about like, and we know that none of these things ever work, right? That's why this is like a perpetual problem. Like there's always, every few years, there's some new national initiative with some new test standard. And, you know, it's like, well, this is now we're getting really serious this time. Well, I would always predict that's not going to work because again, it's just back to doing the objective paradox. Like you're following objectives, but they're going to prevent you from getting where you want to go. And so we need a non-objective way because this is a blue sky type of a problem. Like the thing that really like, like catapults all of the children in the country to some amazing level of achievement is really blue sky and the stepping stones are unknown. And so to be able to navigate a space like that, what you need is a more novelty like search, uh, which is what, what we've seen. And so it suggests very different kinds of approaches than these metric driven kind of objective uh, ways of doing it, which, which I guess to put it in a nutshell, to me, because because I think this this does imply concrete solutions rather than just I don't like the way things work, so like let's just think of something different. But I, I think there is an alternative at hand, which is that what we should really do is foster diversity intentionally in a systemic way, which means that like every teacher has their own intuitions. Again, we're back to subjectivity and intuitions, which makes everybody scared. So we're all going to get scared, but they do because they've been teaching for years about what would work best for their kids or their class. And the, all of those in aggregate, all those intuitions and all those different ideas are, are an extremely valuable resource. And what we should do is try to collect, because novelty is all about diversity, is to try to exploit that diversity and, and reward it in a sense where the stepping stones become available to everybody else. So we should have a system whereby if you actually develop something then you can uh, like a, you develop an approach and it's helping you locally with your children that should be possible to disseminate widely and other people should be able to build off of that and try it with their local group and then all of these different types of ideas will perpetuate many of them novel across the entire system just like a pick breeder where all the images anybody ever discovered are on the site and can be built on and branched from by anybody else who visits the site and then we'll have a pick breeder like search and ed education space and we will surely uncover a lot of innovative ideas that um, otherwise we will never see and we'll never see the light of day because everybody's stuck on this objective metric. Yeah, horizontal communications of results so that people can pick and choose what works 
you know, certainly a very important part of these kinds of parallel social science experiments, but it's hard, right? Imagine if every single teacher has their own approach and, you know, there's 200,000 teachers in the country, a million, I don't know, they can't possibly follow each other. You had a very interesting little algorithm for how to do networked propagation of best practices so that each person didn't have to follow a million different teachers. Why don't you lay that one out for us? I thought that was pretty clever. That's important, yeah, because like there's a there's a straw man version of this where it's like, okay, well, the solution is like we have a giant database of like you know ten million different ideas, and you just like go in there and just hope you find something useful. Like that just isn't going to happen or isn't going to work, and it's not really fair to what I'm proposing um, because that's that's just makes it too easy to dismiss. I mean, what you really want is something like a system of peer review. Um, where the amount of um, interactions is tractable. It's not in the millions, but like every person is basically touching like uh, maybe less than a dozen at max other people with their ideas. And so we can say that each teacher, instead of going through standardized testing, like this is the alternative, goes through um, some kind of peer review on some regular basis, maybe annual basis or something like that, where they, they put their portfolio and their strategy together and then it's reviewed by peers and there can be some minimal uh, criteria for, for like not like avoiding utter failure. So, so there's some, there's still a little bit of degree of objectivity here. Like if it's an absolute failure, then clearly we need to do something to, to change how things are going in this classroom. But short of that, then what the, the peers have an opportunity then they have a, they also have some small set of other peers that they're reviewing to look at the whole case of this teacher, how they approached their year, how well it worked, and then to elevate those things that look really promising or interesting or innovative that they haven't seen before. Um, and that way feedback goes in both directions. Like the peer reviewers get to see new ideas and to rate them. And, and then perhaps like the very best, the highest rated things will be published to some more centralized locations where everybody can see them. But also the people being reviewed then are also getting uh, informed by the experiences and ideas of the peer reviewers. And we have a network and across that network, new ideas and uh, many ideas are propagating, but without everybody having to be aware of everybody. Yeah, I thought that was an extremely clever way to you know handle the horizontal communications problem and the you know find what works problem without you know an unrealistic every to every connection, which just wouldn't work. So maybe you know think about this in terms of practical terms, in terms of something that could be implemented is you know have a radical voucher system where anybody can be a teacher, right? At least for one year, <laughs> and have this horizontal peer review, and perhaps you have the ability of the peer reviewers to re, you know. A supermajority of peer reviewers could revoke your teaching teaching license if you're, you know, a total failure. That might be an interesting way to maximize the amount of diversity, yet still have the horizontal communication and still have a way to weed out the obvious incompetence. Yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't know if you even need to say everybody can be a teacher. We can still have some credentials. I mean, if it makes people uncomfortable. I mean, because I think like the the real barrier to doing these kinds of what some people might perceive as radical types of changes to a system it, are, are basically everybody, everybody's really worried about guardrails. Like, whereas what we really want to get here is innovation. As soon as you start creating an innovative system, it's like, wait, 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 where are the guarantees that things are still working? Like, what, how do I know that everything's not going to collapse and it's going to be complete garbage? And, and we get, I think we, we get a little bit too wrapped up in that um, and it prevents us from doing anything innovative, but it's just this whole like risk reward trade-off. 
Um, and so like, I'd be, I'd be okay with like saying, okay, well, yeah, you still have to have credentials of a teacher experience as a teacher. Um, but within that, we're going to have this, we're going to have this system, um, which is like of peer review and of, uh, checks and balances still. So there's still some, some checks and balances, but, uh, it's going to allow new ideas to percolate and it's going to give you freedom, more freedom. I mean, we're all afraid of freedom. We want to be bound by objectives, but I, I'm telling you, if you give people more freedom, you'll get better ideas and, and they will percolate around. So we have to take a little bit of risk to get a lot of reward. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting general template for thinking about social innovation. I think it's very worth those folks who are working in the area of social innovation, which includes a lot of listeners to this podcast, I'd say a third of our audience is people that are interested in social innovation. This is not an easy concept to get your head around. It took me a while. Frankly, at first I started to read the book, go, what the fuck is this, right? I was kind of expecting a book about neuroevolution, to tell you the truth. But then as I got into it, I said, this is goddamn interesting. And as I got deeper and deeper into it, I would say it's actually worked a change in how I will think about these kind of social change problems. And then particularly this education one is a really neat example that's you know relatively easy to understand and is not dissimilar to a lot of problems, you know, the kinds of problems that we need to fix in our society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, if, if any listener is, is, is interested in social innovation or education, uh, yeah, feel free to get in touch. Like I, I'd love to have some more impact in that area uh, with the book. Cause I, I think it hasn't, the books, the books touched a lot of different areas, but I think one of the areas where I'm less happy about the impact it's had has been education. It just hasn't really had much impact there. And I, I wish that this discussion was more elevated uh, in, in the educational community. Unfortunately, I've done tempted to do some stuff in education. It's really hard. It's the most backward department in every university with one or two exceptions, like Harvard and Columbia. You know, it's 50 years behind in its understanding of cognitive science, you know, horrible bureaucracies, rigid unions. There's a whole bunch of structural problems on why education is really hard to make change in, which is frankly an argument for something like what you're doing, right? You know, a radical change to an entirely different paradigm. Yeah, 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 true. Yeah, I mean, and I do, I do see why it's so hard. Yeah, education is just a, a tough place to do any kind of innovation, especially for an outsider who really, like, you know, honestly doesn't understand the system and what how the bureaucracy works. So I, I just don't know what to do. But, but, uh, but I do think it's it's ripe for change. Yeah, I think an awful lot of people agree with that. Let's go to our last topic here, which is one that has a certain amount of irony to it, right? As you point out. AI experts, like yourself, or what are they fundamentally, but experts in search. And yet, you laid out the idea of kind of the meta-heuristics. What should we be searching about in the field of AI? So why don't you take us down that road? I thought that was, as a person who's you know a bit of a participant around the edges, at least, of the AI and the AGI community, I found it very interesting. And why don't you lay out that story for our listeners? Sure. And hopefully maybe this will also resonate for scientists in general a little bit because, um, you know, it's, it's this problem and everybody's aware of it in, in, in AI that it's a very benchmark driven field. Um, and so, like, if you want to get into one of the top conferences or journals, but these days everybody just cares about conferences in AI, then you're going to need to uh, improve on some benchmark. There's something where you're going to have to show that you're doing better than the state of the art. 
that obviously leads to a lot of incrementalism. Like you're saying, well, I, this is like 0.1% better than this. And therefore I should get in here. And, and, and reviewers tend to be mostly uh, along for that ride and say, oh, well, as long as you've shown that, then you have a chance at least. And, but if you haven't shown that you almost have no chance, it's like, well, do some more experiments and come back when you're ready. Um, and if you think about what that is, I mean, it's another case, just another example of an entirely starkly objective driven search process which is the field itself. That's why I use the word meta. Like this is, this is, we're talking about how the field as a heuristic searches for the best idea. And it's basically using an objective metric, which is performance on some benchmarks to decide whether progress is worth um, sharing with the community at large, whether it's going to get through the publication filter. And that's just, and it is a kind of ironic because like, if there's anywhere where that kind of heuristic should not dominate, it would be in a field where the people are experts in search. Like that's basically AI. I mean, for people who aren't familiar, it's a really a lot of it is about search algorithms and search techniques. And so like these people, these are people who are very sophisticated and understand like what, why you would not want to be trapped in local optima and, and how important it is to avoid those things. And yet as a field at the meta level, we act like the most naive local optimization algorithm that's like basically dying or asking to be trapped in local optima very soon because all we care about is just incrementally pushing up some metric. Um, and particularly, I mean, maybe the converse is, is really the right way to say it. it's not so much that we only care about pushing up the metric, but that we really, really don't care about you if you don't push up a metric. Um, then like, yeah, you're probably going to be told to just come back when you do. And so if you like, in the sense, just have something really interesting, but it's not better in any objective sense, you're out. I mean, nobody's going to hear about that stepping stone that you're offering. And as we've argued throughout this, this conversation, I mean, that's, that's, that's poisonous for innovation. Like we can't share interesting things. Well, then the AI, the response might be from, from some stereotypical defender of the community is like, well, how do we know that they're good? Like, well, you know, if it's just subjective, like it, there's, it gets risky. That's why we need these benchmarks and these metrics. And we're back in a circle again, you know, because of course you can always argue that. But what I'm arguing is that eventually we have to be able to accept that some things are interesting in their own right. And it is actually orthogonal and independent of an objective metric and yet still a very important guidepost for where we might want to explore. And so our inability to embrace that or grapple with that whatsoever, because we could like reviewers actually could engage with what's interesting and what's not interesting. It's not theoretically impossible. It's just that we're afraid to do it. Um, it means that we're, we're, we're basically going to be acting like a naive search algorithm and constantly getting trapped in local optima um, unless we break out of this rut. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it's funny because I'm not a professional and looking to get my stuff published in fancy journals. If I appear in a little conference proceeding, that's fine by me. You know, I tend to skip articles that are, you know, oh, 1% improvement on ImageNet. Who gives a fuck, right? <laughs> Tell you the truth. I look for interesting stuff. Like, for instance, the one that I'm always looking for, and you see very little anymore, is neural architectures that use longer range and stronger versions of recurrence. You know, everybody is in these little mini recurrences, right? If they use a recurrence at all. Most of the stuff's feed forward these days, and there just doesn't seem to be enough exploration even in the narrow field of neural computation. So benchmarks, obviously a problem. And it is highly ironic that people who would know that that's going to lead you to a series of global maxima, nonetheless, that's how they've organized their profession these days. 
But the other one I think was even more interesting in some ways, though maybe not as pervasive. And that's the theory measure. Maybe you could take us through that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So in the book, we talked about these these two kind of measures that are used. And I focused here so far on the benchmark one. And I think that's come to kind of dominate the field recently. Um, it's just because of deep learning and it's very empirical. Um, but at the same time, like in, 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 at least historically, there was also like a, another kind of heuristic, which was like, well, we really also like theoretical results. And that means like a proof. You can prove something is better than something else or that it, that it guarantees something, then that is another indication that that's a path we should go down. But it's just another, to me, it's just another example of the, this objective fallacy, um, which is that it just because you have some kind of objective evidence of progress, that doesn't necessarily mean you're not heading into a brick wall. Uh, it's just another way of trying to be very objective. And in this case, I mean, proof, well, how more objective can you be than a proof? And to basically give us a, the, the feeling that we have some kind of safety net around us and we're not going in the wrong direction. But it's just as it's just as possible to be deceptive. I mean, that's that's the part that it's sort of hard to acknowledge or even see that, like, even though you're being extremely objective by actually like speaking in, in, in the language of proof. I mean, it's, it's, it's a definitively true or not true what you're saying that it's still ultimately from a meta perspective, not necessarily a good heuristic for knowing whether we're heading in the right direction because it doesn't mean it's interesting. And, you know, sometimes like you have to go down before you go up. Uh, I mean, that's basically the, the point of deception. Like sometimes like the, the, the mouse in the maze has to back up uh, and go down a different route and actually go farther away from the goal before it can get to the goal. And so all of these kind of objective principles where we just follow increasing uh, guarantees or increasing score, ignore this fact that you have to back up sometimes in order to move ahead. And so what is the heuristic for knowing when it's a good backup? I mean, sometimes that is you should be able to acknowledge that this is just super interesting and opens up a whole new world of possibilities. And those can often be the best contributions. And in fact, you propose a potential partial solution, which is, and this is your journal idea. Right. This was a, to, to be a thought experiment, although it might actually be interesting to have this journal, um, which is, we called it the Journal of AI Discovery, I think. But if there was a journal where we we say that Basically, so first of all, it's hopefully hope is it's a prestigious journal. So we're going to get the best scientists in the world to do the reviews. It's still everybody's good that's involved in this, um, but it's different from any other journal in the sense that the reviewers are not allowed to talk about the results. So the reviewers can only talk about the idea, but not the results as they're reported. So this would actually, at first, it sounds kind of crazy. Like what the journal, the reviewers can't look at, can't talk about the results, but the results are what we always use to know whether we should publish something. But what it does do is that it then prevents, it basically puts a short circuit in this like pathological circuit that we have where it prevents this kind of objective fallacy from coming into play because the reviewers are no longer allowed to use their security blanket. Because I think, after all, that these kinds of objective measurements are security blankets for reviewers because it makes it so they don't have to think. You know, if I can just say, oh, well, this score is better than that score, good. Or this, you didn't compare X to Z, you compared to Y, why don't you compare X to Z and then come back? I don't have to think. I don't have to understand anything about your idea. I don't have to engage it at all. I don't have to say why it's interesting or not interesting or how it relates to anything. 
I can just ignore all that and just be completely objective, sound like I know what I'm talking about, and then move on to the rest of my life. But if you had a journal like this where you can't do that because you can't talk about the results, then you're in a very uncomfortable position of actually having to engage with the idea and whether it's interesting. And I think like the, the best scientists certainly can do this. We just don't want to. It's just it's harder. It takes longer. It's more awkward. And also you, you feel like it's not objective. So you're worried about it. But we could do it. And if we did do it, arguably, I think much more interesting things uh, would be published in this journal than elsewhere, because it would be entirely about engaging with what's interesting, uh, rather than some kind of like naive local optimization of a benchmark. I thought that was such a clever idea, you know, and I have a background in publishing and what have you. And, you know, I actually generalized your idea and said, ah, I think this problem is pervasive across science. Someone should start the interesting journals company and take your idea and apply it to you know every domain. It wasn't for the fact that paid high dollar scientific journals are kind of in their sunset period, one hopes. You know, who knows? I might actually hire someone to go do it, but that seems to me a sunset industry, so probably not a good business opportunity at this time. <laughs> Either way, I'd, I would enjoy it or make it a conference then. I don't know, but it, it, yeah, if somebody would do that, that would be really fun. Yeah, we should talk about that. I'd be game to help get that off the ground. I know lots of top scientists in all kinds of interesting fields. You could even have the top one, which is interesting results across all fields, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that would probably get a lot of readers, yeah. And kind of the equivalent of what science and nature used to be, right? Yeah, yeah, true. Anyway, I thought that was a very, very interesting and provocative and unexpected idea and certainly got me thinking. Well, Ken, this has been a phenomenally interesting conversation. And I got to say, this book turned out to be more interesting than I initially thought it would be. Interesting. There's that word again. And I can recommend it to people really quite sincerely as something that people that are thinking about science, thinking about social change, thinking about AI, well worth reading. So why don't you tell us the title again? Okay. It's uh, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned with the subtitle, The Myth of the Objective from Springer. Ken Stanley, and your author was Lehman, right? What was his first name? Yep, Joel Lehman. Joel Lehman. All right. Well, thanks again, Ken. This was a whole lot of fun. This was great. Thank you. I had a great time on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I look forward to having you back next month when we can talk about neural evolution. Looking forward to that, definitely. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.